Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Congressman Ro Khanna. And when I say talking, I mean partly talking and maybe debating a little bit. <laughs> a little un poquito. We got to get into it a debate. little bit with him. Yeah, no, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. It should be fun. But uh, before we even jump into it, of course, shameless plug time, everybody. Do me a, a big favor. Shoot on over to Substack. Link is in the video description box below. And make sure you sign up. If you pay $5 a month, you get the video of every interview and you get it a day early. You know, you're going to want to see this one, so definitely do that. And for everybody else, you can still go to Substack and sign up for free, and you get the audio version of every interview, and you get it a day later, usually on Saturdays. Remember, we don't talk to any advertisers ever. We build it through small-dollar donations, so we truly appreciate any help you guys could give. Now, having said that, um, there's a story regarding Ilhan Omar that just dropped that I thought was very interesting. Tell everybody about that. Yeah, so this is this is kind of fascinating. So uh, the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, he is coming over to give an address to a joint session of Congress. And she has said, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar has said, there is no way in hell that she will attend that ad address next week. Um, she announced this on in a statement on Twitter. She criticized Israeli president over the country's human rights violations and for representing, quote, the most right-wing government in Israel's history, which is just factually accurate. She also accused Israel's government of essentially putting a nail in the coffin of peace and a two-state solution with Palestine. I would say that is also factually accurate. Um, I sort of forgot that she, this isn't the first time she's boycotted an address. She also boycotted the address, Modi's address uh, to Congress recently. So she is sort of planting a flag saying, listen, this country has way too many problems, way too many human rights abuses. They won't even let me in the country. Um, so hell no, I am not going to this dress. So do you like it? Yes, I do. I mean, I, I just think at this point, the, the piece to me about the, the idea of a two-state solution, this is a farce. I mean, they don't even pretend in, you know, in Israel anymore that this is a feasible possibility. They just keep on building out and keep on building out illegal to occupy uh, illegal settlements. And the Biden administration, you know, they'll, they'll put out some like incredibly mild veiled criticism, but they're not planning on doing anything to to change the situation. So you know, it's the very least that you can do in terms of an act of protest to say, I'm not going to sit stand by and, and listen to this individual. Yeah. And the reality is in the U.S. political establishment, you know, our top allies get sucked off. Israel gets sucked off relentlessly. Mm -hmm. India gets sucked off relentlessly. Uh, Saudi Arabia gets sucked off relentlessly. There's a little bit of a deviation on that in the media front, which is good. But even like CNN, remember when they they had like a deal with Dubai where they would write these fawning articles over Dubai. And it's like, this is not what, a, you know, you're supposed to be doing journalists. This is not journalism. Basically pay to play stuff for, you know, promoting Dubai. But, um, you know, given that those are the facts and given all the human rights abuses over Israel in India, Saudi Arabia, I think like standing up in a hotbed of support of these countries and saying, no, this is wrong, and they're doing all these human rights abuses. I think it's correct morally, and I also think it's kind of brave. Because, you know, as outsiders, people can look at that and say, oh, of course we know Israel's human rights record is terrible. They basically do apartheid, illegal occupation, violating international law. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah. But in, in that area, in Washington, D.C., in the belly of the beast, in the swamp, if you say that, what do they do? They castigate you and call you an anti-Semite immediately. That's what they did with Ilhan Omar. Yes. You know, what did they, she said, it's all about the Benjamins talking about the Israel lobby, APAC. Mm -hmm. You want to know why she said that? Because it is all about the Benjamins with every lobbying group. She would have said that about Saudi Arabia and nobody would have called her an Islamophobe, right? So they called her an anti-Semite over that. It's bogus. It's total bullshit.
And so she's standing up and fighting on human rights grounds. She, she references Rashida Tlaib, a congresswoman who literally can't go see her grandma because of how uh, oppressive and restrictive the Israeli government is. So I think, it's, I think it's definitely the right thing to do. I will add, though, on top of this, that um, I've been thinking a lot about foreign policy lately, and I think the best approach is sort of like neutrality and necessary connections for trade and, and things like that. You know what I mean? Because, and, and that sort of goes across the board. We have countries that we love and we turn a blind eye to all their uh, mm -hmm. human rights abuses. And then there's countries that we hate, like Iran, North Korea, and we play up all of their human rights abuses. Oh my, this is terrible. Somebody needs to do something about this. And we play the role of world policemen. Right. And I would much rather have a neutral approach on foreign policy where we need to have trade relationships, you maintain the trade relationships, but it's almost like a, a dog, it's your business. It's almost like a, a, like a real politic, pragmatic approach on foreign policy, but from a left-wing non-interventionist perspective. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying. So in the context of Israel, it, what you're saying is like, we shouldn't go in and do like a regime change of the Netanyahu government. But what we should do is, you know, why do we give them so much military aid? Like that cut would be a more... Aid, cut off the funding, exactly. But if you have a trade relationship that's somewhat necessary in order for the world to keep functioning, it's like, okay, what are you going to do? But it's more neutrality. Yeah, I, I I see that that point. I don't have to think through it a little bit more. Because, it's a complex issue, right? I mean, that the idealist in me wants to believe in the possibility of some sort of like human rights based international rule based order where people who are good citizens and you know countries that are good citizens are able to get more access to trade or you know the benefits of allyship or whatever and others are you know not that we're gonna like regime change them but there's uh, less benefits to come with from that because I just it's hard for me to wrap my head around how you really truly have sort of neutrality with all countries because you're gonna have countries that are your allies that you're sharing intelligence with that you have certain trade ties with etc so it's for me it's a little bit more complex to think through than that but certain with Israel we've just I agree, given by them the way, that's just a yeah. benchmark and then you have to react accordingly based on new information yeah who's super extremely bad versus who's good etc anyway yeah but I mean with Israel we just cover for them we let anything oh, it's go worst. and it's just <laughs> the worst. it's just so with them with the Saudis I mean it's just so brazenly obvious that all of our talk about like human rights and democracy is total bullshit you can't have a, a, a real democracy that's an ethno state I mean it's just like to me cut and dry it's it's literally like definitionally you cannot have a democracy that's an ethno state yeah you know uh you're reminding me of there was a washington post guy on fox news the other day i covered this on my show and he made an outright defense of dictatorships what in 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 like talking about saudi arabia basically buying the pga tour and professional golf yeah and he made an affirmative case for like hey you know you need dictators what are you gonna do and it's like, this is the mindset, right? If it's if it's our ally, you can get away. Whatever the hell you want to get wow. away with is totally fine. If it's an enemy, they would use the fact that we're talking about a dictator or a theocracy or whatever. And they'd be like, oh, somebody take action now. This is uh, our moral conscience can't take this. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So it's all so haphazard. Okay, so... Um, I also wanted to show you this video, Crystal. Now, okay. when Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was on your show, this was a talking point that he put out there uh basically that he thinks the free market is the solution to pollution and climate change mm -hmm. <laughs> which you might uh, kyle you're straw man and come on wrong i'm not so let me play you this video and then we'll react to it i agree a hundred percent with you that this crisis is being used as a pretext for 
clamping down totalitarian controls the same way that the COVID crisis was. And it's the same people, it's intelligence agencies, it's the World Economic Forum, it's the Billionaire's Voice Club at Davos, and it's the same kind of cabal of, of people who are use, who will use every crisis to stratify society toward you know greater power for the super rich and uh, greater power for the military, greater power for the intelligence apparatus and less power for everybody else. A war on carbon is not gonna solve the problem. If we don't have a habitat left at the end, my approach to energy is using free markets and that not top-down control. We can recover what we had, but we just have to stay out of fear because that is the weapon of tyrants. If you like this video and you want to help me become president of the United States, go to Kennedy24.com and donate now. Now, I just want to add for you also, so he tweeted this video out to, like, brag about it and show it. Yeah. And he also said the following. Climate change is being used to control us through fear. Freedom and free markets are a much better way to stop pollution. Wow. Polluters make themselves rich by making the public pay for the damage they do. You show me a polluter, I'll show you a fat cat using political clout to escape the discipline of the free market. Okay, I'll let you take your stab at this first. Obviously, I have a lot to say about it. There's so much here that drives me crazy. First of all, one of my big irritations uh, is this right-wing conspiracy that the World Economic Forum wants to do anything about climate change. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they want to do nothing. They want to keep the status quo is the, what they want to the do. The Billionaires Boys Club is very devoted to maintaining the status quo. Correct. This whole, I mean, this gets into like the whole ESG debate, which is for people who, you know, haven't, haven't drank deeply of these waters. It stands for environmental social governance. And the whole critique from like Vivek Ramaswamy and these other people is how dare these companies uh, support any values other than just the bottom line. As if these companies actually care about doing anything other than virtue signaling on climate change. It's 100% greenwashing. There's tons of research and studies that show the companies that embraced ESG are actually worse on these goals. So that's one piece is like this idea that the Davos set gives a single solitary fuck about climate change is ridiculous and completely like anti-factual. So that's number one. Number two, this idea of like, okay, you know, control and totalitarianism and they're using a crisis co to control us. Um, and you shouldn't be afraid. It's like, well, tell that to the people who just had their homes swept away in New England. What they shouldn't be afraid of, the people who are having their, you know, proper, their lives threatened by unbelievable hurricanes or, you know, facing drought and 120 degrees in the Southwest. It is a legitimate crisis. We need to take action. There is a de democracy failure because the public actually wants to take action and our politicians who are bought off by the Davos set don't want to because they like the status quo. And so it, just to cut you off for a second, yeah. is there is any government action to address climate change a totalitarian overreach by definition? So is, I mean, any government action it falls seems like this, it. This is a, yeah, that's what it sounds like, it right? That's certain, what it sounds like you said. It certainly seems like it. So, like, I mean, I just don't even... You know, this goes back to some of the like right wing freakouts over like gas stoves or whatever, you know, and it's like, oh, totalitarian. And it starts with this. I mean, even the the RFK leans very much into the, the covid lockdowns and the things that happened there. And the fear mongering from the right about that was like, oh, we're going to go into endless lockdown and that's going to be it. Like, obviously, that <laughs> didn't happen. Right. 
<laughs> and so anyway, I remember I when people think... were saying Biden's going to bring back the uh, the lockdowns. Right. And it was like he never even considered it. No, exactly. Right. I mean, so so much of this just drives me um, crazy. And then finally, using free markets to deal with climate change. And this was the same thing that he told us on the show. I asked him, do you see climate change as an existential threat? And he said, yes, but I'm not going to talk about it on the campaign trail because I think it's divisive, basically. And then we should use free markets to solve. No, uh, this is the exact definition of a problem that free markets are not going to solve. Why? Because you have a societal goal here of not going down the path of continued climate hellscape that is at odds with the profit-making motive for lots of companies that are very, very powerful. So this is like the definition of a problem that the free market is never going to solve. Okay, I'm going to say what I said the first time I covered a similar comment he made here. He literally doesn't know what externalities are. He does not know what an economic externality is. It's like an unintended consequence of a capitalist system or a free market. So the classic example people talk about is, remember there was that company by the Hudson River? This is way back, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, something like that. And um, they were polluting the Hudson River because it was cheaper for them to just dump their toxic waste into the Hudson River. And that's what you call an externality. And so that's what the free market gave us, them doing that. It took the government stepping in after new regulation to say, you're not allowed to dispose of that like that. Right. You need to spend the extra money to dispose of this in a way that's safe, that's not going to fucking poison people. Is he unaware of that? Because he keeps bringing up pollution and climate change that like, well, the free market's going to fix it. Like that is nothing could be further from the truth. The free market is the problem. Well, so if I was to steel man his position, because he says this thing about like, you show me a polluter and I'll show you someone who's imposing costs that they're not paying for or something like that. I, I, I could see where maybe what he's talking about there is like externalities and we need to price that into the system and that would reflect a true free market. Read to me the tweet that he says. He says this thing about like, you show me a polluter and... Freedom and free markets are a much better way to stop pollution. And then he says, polluters make themselves rich by making the public pay for the damage they do. You show me a polluter, I'll show you a fat cat using political clout to escape the discipline of the free market. So No, this is what the free market gets you. Right. So this, The free market gets you the really rich fat cat who buys the politician who lets right. them get away with their shit. Correct. But even if you were to like really charitably try to read that of like he's actually talking about externalities and that needs to be borne, those costs need to be borne by the company, then it's like, okay, then you would support like a cap and trade system. Like that was the the free market attempt to, all right, we'll price in carbon. That'll, that'll discipline. But he doesn't, I mean, he hasn't yeah, but at least come out with any sort of like, we're going to do carbon pricing, we're going to do cap and trade. That's my definition of a free market. And I would argue cap and trade isn't really free market. Free market is laissez-faire, unfettered, hands-off capitalism. That's what, that's what it is. And when you have that, this is why when we had this during the Industrial Revolution, there were uh, tenement houses, there, were, there was child labor, there was you know, extreme pollution. Like This yeah. is the result of that system. You can't just redefine it and say now free market means not that. No, that's what it means. Well, this is the evolution of climate denialism on the right, which is, okay, the science is too, and, and people are just experiencing 
the impact of climate change so directly in their lives all the time with extreme weather that we can't really deny that it's like we can't really say it's not real anymore. So instead, we're going to throw up all sorts of objections just to doing anything about it. You know, whether it's the World Economic Forum conspiracy, which, again, the conspiracy, the World Economic Forum, as we've said 100 times, it's all out in the open. The it's conspiracy a is protection racket. That's yes. What it is. And they want to make money. And yeah. guess what? Like undercutting the oil and gas industry is not good for them, requiring them to like, you know, green their operation, reduce carbon footprint, whatever. That is not good for their bottom line. So they have no interest in any of that. But yeah, I mean, I just the, the, the new mode is we're going to acknowledge that climate change is real because we look too stupid if we don't do that. But then we're going to come up with all sorts of reasons why we can't actually do anything about it or why we shouldn't do anything about it. And it seems to me like he fits perfectly on that new mode of what is effectively has the same impact ultimately of climate denialism. Final points on this. Um, he says a war on carbon is not going to solve the problem. I would say almost definitionally, yes. Yeah, well. <laughs> that, that is exactly what you have to do. Now, you might not like that. It might feel, oh, my God, this is big change. So it feels kind of scary to do this. You know, we've never fully transitioned to solar and wind and geothermal and nuclear. So it seems like a big endeavor. It is a big endeavor. But you need to actually get off of carbon if you want to be serious about fighting back against climate change. And then the final thing is, he says, fear is the weapon of tyrants. The reason why I hate comments, like, first of all, it sounds like some shit you're on a fucking fortune cookie. Mm -hmm. Second of all, is it never the right response to be fearful? Right. What about World War II? What about when Hitler started taking shit over in Europe? Were we allowed to, was the, the government allowed, was FDR allowed to be like, hey man, we need to start, we need to start mobilizing, we need to start doing something, or would somebody, you know, chime in and say, fear is the weapon of tyrants, so you're wrong by definition. It's like, I hate this fortune cookie platitude bullshit like you can't govern that way yeah. and he didn't think through these things in any serious way it's this weird thing where he's trying to like appease the right while still holding on to his environmentalist bona fides right you know what i mean like that's yeah. what it's very bizarre that that's exactly what it feels like no i mean that's my point about like is the person who just like had their home swept away and were terrified for their lives by these floodwaters in New England? Like, is it okay for them to be a little bit afraid about that? Like, we should be afraid of what's happening to the planet. We should be afraid of the way that these crises are going to impact us. And we should be, we should use that fear to spur some action to actually deal with the problem that the free market is not going to take care of. Um I think they just need more free market, Crystal. So <laughs> get your head right. He needs right. to run for, I don't know what, I mean, his ideology is, it's so all over the place. It's scattered. The place. Yes. All right. So we had to discuss this. This I even I was astonished by this and I don't expect much of Mike Pence. But Mike Pence came out and said he supports uh, banning abortion even for non-viable pregnancies. So in other words, if it looks like, you know, there's a fatal defect in the fetus or whatever, it's still like, well, you got to give it a shot. This is his position. So I want to read you this in CNN. Former wow. Vice President Mike Pence said abortion should be banned when pregnancy is not viable, according to the Associated Press. Quote, I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it, Pence told the AP in a recent interview. I just have heard so many stories over the years of courageous women and families who were told that their unborn child would not go to term or would not survive. And then they had a healthy pregnancy and a healthy delivery. Wow. Yeah. So, look, I don't know what the statistics are. If I had to guess, I would say that in the overwhelming majority of cases, if a doctor tells you this fetus is not viable, uh, the fetus isn't viable. And so effectively what he would be doing is forcing many women to have a stillbirth. That's 
literally, it's monstrous. That's got to be incredibly traumatizing, right? Like super traumatizing. I can't imagine. You go through all of this, you carry a baby to turn, knowing it's, I mean, it's, you're, you're advocating for torture of these women. I mean, literally, I don't know how else you describe a situation like that. And so it's unbelievable to me. And then I saw some, um, Headlines that, you know, other Republicans are getting asked about it and they're just like dodging the question. I mean, this is this should be a gimme that this is just monstrous and way out of. I mean, if you polled this position, what do you think? Ninety eight percent for all for all the contrary, defund the police. And it's such a bad slogan. It's so bad for Democrats, whatever. Like, what do you say about this shit that like point one percent of the population would be cool with and is just actively torturing women? Um Pence has clearly decided that his lane in the primary is to be the furthest right, especially on abortion, but on like sort of traditionally cultural conservative issues. He's looking at Iowa, which has a big evangelical population and they're well organized, whatever. And, you know, and this is where his politics have always been. But um, this is particularly grotesque. I don't understand why people feel the need to like have this purity race and this like I'm going to I'm going to take the maximalist position race. It's really weird, especially when you talk about the issue of abortion. So, like, you know, I watched a debate the other day where somebody was arguing literally the moment of conception is from then on. It's a wrap. It should be illegal for you to do anything. And it's like that that opens up so many questions. It's like, so, okay, if they take the morning after pill or take the abortion pill within the first couple of weeks or whatever, would you consider that murder? Is that what you would do? Yeah, they right. Would. They if we're talking yeah. about a gamete or a zygote or a pre-gestation fetus, if we're talking, as Bill Maher crudely would say in a joke back in the day, we're talking about a pile of goo and you're willing to say that that's, you know, this needs the full protection of the law, that you're very close to saying if somebody jacks off into a tissue and has their jizz there that like you just committed murder to 17 trillion things because you got 17 trillion sperm in there, right? Yeah. This is a gross conversation. Well, they would but never, anyway. they would never control men in that way. Uh, right. But, but, you get, <laughs> but you get the point, right? Yes. It's like, what is with this? Because I think any reasonable person when talking about the issue of abortion, you have to think it through seriously. And if you think it through seriously, you know, I think you could dismiss the position pretty quickly that like the moment of conception is when there's a third person in the room. Uh, and then look on the flip side. I don't agree with the idea of like right up to nine months, right up to that line, like a day before the baby's going to be born, you can shove scissors into the back of his head. No, there's obviously a different moral calculation then versus the beginning. So where I end up is actually where the overwhelming majority of the country ends up and where almost all Democrats are, which is Roe versus Wade. I think it was phenomenal. It was a phenomenal idea. It was actually a very moderate approach to abortion. What it said is first trimester, it's a right. Women can decide. End of conversation. Second trimester, it's mostly a right, but there's, you know, some health regulations that can be put into place. Third trimester, if states so choose, they can ban like late term abortion. That's where it was. And I think that was a reasonable line. And, you know, smarter people than me have the conversation all the time. What is the actual line? Is it, uh, you know, fetal heartbeat? Is it uh, the consciousness being developed? Is it viability of the fetus where it can survive on its own? Is it is it pain? Like, where's the line? Like, it's a very actually interesting philosophical and moral and, and ethical conversation. Yeah. But where we end up is with people like Mike Pence saying, I'm going to force you to have a stillbirth. Like, really? This is how off in the wilderness we are? And you got these Republican states trying to ban it from six weeks? A lot of people don't even know they're fucking pregnant in six weeks. Yeah. And this is where we are? That's psychotic stuff. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, it's stuff like this that we're about to talk to Congressman Rokana about Joe Biden and what he might do in a second term and whatever. 
it's stuff like this that makes it so Biden could just be like, I won't do that. You oh, yeah. know, like I'm and not going to I'm not going to bring Roe versus Wade back. I'm not going to codify rights to an abortion. I'm not going to get rid of the filibuster to do any of that. But I just am not going to do that crazy ass shit that Mike Pence says that he is dedicated to. And a lot of other Republicans have very extreme positions. I'm just not going to do that. And for a lot of people, I'll be like, well, that's good enough, I guess. And if Mike Pence thinks this is going to help me, even in the primary, wrong. You got another thing coming. If he thinks it's going to help me in a general, I mean, you got another thing I coming. I think it might help him get from 6% to 8% in a you primary. You think so? That's funny. I don't even think that. Yeah, I do. Because I do. I mean, there is a very, there is a small part of the GOP base that is very well organized, that is very committed on this issue. And that has broken with Trump on, you know, him trying to moderate some of the language. So, yeah, I think it could get him, you know from six to eight percent if he stakes out the position of like i'm the biggest psycho on abortion yeah it's fine that's about it i just respectfully disagree i think you make a good point i just disagree i think that these people first of all trump is the vibes guy and a lot of these people just go based off vibes even though they act like they don't that's the first point Mm -hmm. second point is if you want somebody who's more anti-abortion who's actually more viable you go to santa's who's at 23 percent instead of six percent yeah you know so i just feel like he's trying but this I, I don't think it's going to work at all. DeSantis is less viable every day. So, <laughs> I mean, he's been going down, but Mike Pence, really, he's human oatmeal. You think yeah. Mike Pence is more viable than Ron DeSantis? No, but I mean, I just, I don't think any of them are viable at this point. I but, kind of agree with yeah. you. I mean, unless Trump is literally behind bars and even then it's a coin flip. Yeah, the, the Murdochs are now like, they're I, I covered that. Abandoning, I about that. They're abandoning yeah. shit. But, they're like, maybe Tim Scott. Okay, but I have to ask you this now because, so my first thought when I saw that is, oh my God, are they going to do the 2016 thing all over again? Where they, they were like, we're going to go Jeb Bush. And then it was like, okay, he didn't work. We're going to go Marco Rubio. Okay, that didn't work. Uh, let's try Kasich for two and a half seconds. That doesn't work. Uh, fine, Ted Cruz. And that didn't work either. Are they going to do the same thing? Are they going to now jump from DeSantis to Nikki Haley to yes. Tim Scott yes. to Mike Pence? And they're going to, because that is not going to work. The only person who had any chance was Ron DeSantis, and it needed to be one on one versus Trump, and you need a unified. Uh, conservative media apparatus to hammer away being pro-DeSantis and anti-Trump. And that obviously didn't come to fruition. Yeah, but no, that's what they're going to do. I mean, the at least the reporting is like, now they're taking taking a hard look at uh, Tim Scott. Oh! Yeah, but then also, also, you'll like this one. It says in there that uh, Rupert Murdoch would still like Glenn Youngkin to get over. <laughs> Real Trump slayers there. I mean, listen, even, listen even, with DeSantis, I just don't think he had ever had the, the it factor to be able to knock off the king which is trump you know i i don't know that he i don't Nobody know who do would it. have been the right. right person to rally behind it's but vibes, man. it's it's clear to me that at this point that he was never that right person even he, if they did all those right things from the beginning trump is such a showman and he's so charismatic and he's kind of funny he's hilarious and like his his aura just fills the room whether you like him or dislike him right and like i'll give DeSantis that i just think He's better numbers wise than all the other Republicans. I mean, I, however bad DeSantis is, people make fun of him for being an introvert and being kind of awkward. All that is true. Yeah. But the other guys are worse. Every other candidate is worse, except uh, maybe Vivek Ramaswamy, but he's got weird, arrogant vibes that yeah. don't land. You know what I mean? Yeah, Vivek. Uh, yeah, agreed. I mean, I actually think in terms of talent, I think Chris Christie is the most talented. Oh, I forgot about Christie. Yeah, no, I agree. He is better. He's, he's above the most DeSantis talented. in terms of talking. But yeah. he's, you know, he's so at odds with the GOP base that that one was never going to work out. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I don't see anyone else who on just like a sheer political talent, putting ideology aside, really has what it takes that they could have rallied around. But to your point, like, I literally don't think anybody has it. Doug Burgum. 
Bergamentum baby. <laughs> he said, if you donate a dollar to his campaign, he'll give you $20. So we're now doing like Ponzi schemes as we're running for president. Yes, the Bergam bros <laughs> are doing Ponzi schemes. Oh my God. I love it. We were trying to interview over on Breaking Points. We're trying to interview all these people. We have like Asa Hutchinson. I hear you're going to talk to book, Ada. Yeah. Who we call Ada for certain reasons. <laughs> That's what Trump said. I still don't know why he did that. For certain reasons. He was talking about Asa Hutchinson. He goes, we don't call him Asa. We call him Ada. I, I actually want to get him to react to that clip. Oh, yes. And see what he says Oh, my to God. It. I because, I mean, that. the whole point of Trump is like, ah, oh, these people are not even at 1%. Why are they even running? Which is a fair question to put to him. And so I'm, I'm thinking we get him to respond yeah. to that clip. Here's going to be Asa's response. Uh, sir, my name is Asa, not Ada. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to fact check you on that, please. I appreciate him coming in. <laughs> we'll see how he does and what he has to say. We'll take it at face value. Listen, I'm a I'm a Bergam stan. I, so I really am, want to interview boy. him. We that's put in a request boy. for him. We put in a request for Chris. I really want to talk to Chris Christie. My, our 15-year-old is now weirdly like become a Chris Christie Christie's, fan. Christie's a, a very good communicator. I'll she, say. Says he's, she says he's a body positivity king. <laughs> I actually, we, I forgot I wanted to cover a Christie clip with you. It was the one where he's talking to Piers Morgan about trans stuff. Mm. And it's super interesting because he goes from like, he, he like lists off two or three very conservative position he ha positions he has on trans issues. But then randomly on the fourth one, he has like a super lefty position on it. It was amazing. It was like, a, you know, a biological man is somebody born a biological man. And that's the end of the conversation. A biological woman is somebody born a biological woman. And that's the end of the conversation. That's how I view it. Yeah. And then Piers Morgan was like, okay, well, what if it's like an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old? And uh, they're they're on like hormones or or um, test. Uh, what's the other one? Puberty, Puberty blockers. blockers. Uh, and, and Christy was like, well, that's totally up to the parents and the individual. <laughs> I was like, yeah. wait, what? I thought you were going to hit him with the hard right thing again. Well, yeah, I, I, see, I haven't seen that interview. I saw him talking about these issues in uh, maybe a PBS interview. I don't know. Ella, our daughter, sends me all this stuff now about Chris Christie. <laughs> Christy fan club. That's so amazing. funny. <laughs> yeah, she's, it's like half ironic, but anyway, whatever. But um, it seems like he's trying to do what some, like Joe Biden does on abortion which is saying, I personally think this is wrong. Personally, in my family, like we wouldn't get an abortion, but I don't think it should be up to the state. I think it should be up to the individual families. It seems to me like that's the line he's trying to walk yeah, on but tra like, trans he, issues. He, it seemed to me, based on what he said, that he wouldn't even call a trans person by their preferred pronouns, which to me is like the easiest thing. Even a lot of hardcore conservatives. Would I just like, feel yeah, like I'll that's so dickish. What's that? I feel it's so dickish well, I'll tell to you be why, like that. Well, he answered like that because the way it was like presented to him was like, you know, he, he went to that corner of a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And that's how I view it. And it may have been related to a sports conversation mm. too, where he was like, Piers I'm Morgan's not going to allow that sports shit. Piers Morgan will not. He is such a fucking wave rider. That guy, man, whatever issues hot. He's like, I need to surf the wave. I need to surf the wave. And he just fucking virtue signals all day to his audience. Anyway, uh, that was sort of randomly bitter and out of nowhere. But, um, <laughs> but Chris Christie, uh, it was very interesting that the like two or three right wing positions that hit him with the left wing position and Piers and Piers pushed him on it too. like seriously, a 10 year old like puberty blockers, hormones. And he was like, listen, I'm against big government. It's none of the business of the government to get involved in that situation. We talk about parents rights when it comes to schools. I believe in parents rights when it comes to schools. I also believe in it for stuff like this. That's consistent. Yeah. So anyway, interesting guy. Yeah, very much so. Anyway, we have another politician we want to talk to this morning. Uh, Congressman Rokana coming in studio. Let's get to it. Congressman Rokana, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Great to be on. So a uh, bunch of stuff we want to talk to you about. Um, first of all, on the student debt front, 
Uh, I found it very interesting. You've been leading the charge now, basically trying to prod Biden to take a maximalist approach. And I must say, I have been pleasantly surprised with uh, how he's gone about this. I mean, I, obviously, I would have preferred him totally wiping out the student loan debt, which I think he has the authority to do. He didn't, but his plan was still more than I expected from him. Then he appealed the cases. The Supreme Court striked it down. And, you know, myself and many others were screaming, if the Supreme Court strikes it down, you better do the Higher Education Act and of 1965 in order to, you know, try a different avenue to reduce this student loan debt. And to my pleasant surprise, he did do that. Now, there's a couple like asterisks in the conversation, um, and he actually hasn't gone the full maximalist approach. Can you explain where he's fallen short and what your advice to him is on it? Well, the biggest thing is we can't have people start repaying their loans come September, and we can't have the interest start accruing come September. So he said that he's going to invoke the Higher Education Act, uh, but the loan payments resume, and he's not going to refer them to a credit agency. That's fine, but your interest is still piling up. And those of us who have had student loans, you know, it looks like the number just keeps increasing, uh, and that's going to continue to happen. And some people are going to pay it there because some mm -hmm. people may say, okay, I don't have to pay it. I'll be refer I, I'm not going to get referred, but other people are just going to get the bill and they're going to pay it. So I think at the very least he should say no payments uh, until this debt is forgiven. Is there a more rapid approach that he could have taken as well? Because there was an analysis from, uh, I think it was from David Dayen over the American Prospect that basically not to get too in the weeds with this, but the way they chose to do this was through the rulemaking process, which takes a long freaking time. And it's going to be probably years as this drags out and as they go through the process, and then it's going to go back through the court system before anybody sees a penny of debt relief. Was there a more rapid approach that they could have taken? They could have done it through administrative order and not through the rulemaking process. One of the things they could have done in the HEROES Act is they could have just zeroed out uh, after the president announced the forgiveness and not waited on the court. So then if the court came and struck it down, then it would be actually uh, recovering money from students mm. that was already canceled. Oh. And they could have been more assertive in canceling it uh, because it's harder than to to collect on something that's already been canceled. So, you know, obviously a Bernie Sanders would have approached this or an Elizabeth Warren differently. Yeah. They would have been more assertive. I agree with you that Biden has done more than uh, we expected. But I think this is a key moment because he's got to fight. I keynoted the Young Democrats for America, and I said uh, just it's hard to be young in America in 2023. Look at student debt. And people, before I could even say cancel it, they started yelling, cancel it, cancel it. Uh, this is an issue that young people care deeply about. They want to see that we're fighting and, and they don't want us to start repayments yeah. in September. So this is an important point, because even when I was reading about what happened with Biden invoking the Higher Education Act, every article I read on it seemed to indicate that, number one, yes, Biden can do this. But number two, there has to be sort of a comment period during the rulemaking process. So basically what you're describing for everybody is he actually didn't have to go about it this way. He could have used a different process, just sort of wiped the slate clean, and then basically said, hey, Supreme Court, if you want to hear a case on this and you want to say, uh, bring back the student loan debt, okay, you go ahead and try to figure out how to do that administratively. Is that yeah, what you're saying? exactly. I mean, cancel it. You, you do it. Now the Supreme Court says, no, we shouldn't have canceled it. Now you have to figure out how do you collect back what you've already canceled. That's a much harder thing administratively to do. Uh, and so that that could have been one avenue uh, under the HEROES Act, certainly. Now, with the Higher Education Act, uh, you know, he could have gone through 
uh, the administrative process instead of the rule process. But the biggest thing, I think, is this repayment. Mm -hmm. You can't have young yeah, people start right. to repay loans in September or see their interest start to accumulate when they haven't seen that for years. So I do want to ask you, this might sound slightly conspiratorial, and this is actually not a theory I personally buy, because like I said, I think Biden has done more on this than I ever expected of him to do on this issue of student loan debt relief. But some people say, like, the reason he's going about it in this way is because he wants, like, the political brownie points of fighting and doing it. But now if the Supreme Court st uh, strikes it down again and says you can't do it through the Higher Education Act, then he's going to go, oh, OK, well, you know, I tried every avenue. What do you want me to do? Do you buy that theory? Do you think that it's more for the political view of it or does he actually want to get it done and he's just going about it a clunky way? I think he wants to get it done because right now he's getting hit from both sides. The folks who don't like the student loan relief are upset that he's doing it. So and then the students are upset that they're not getting the relief. That's true. Yeah. So if you're going to do it, you want to get the actual relief. So I think at this point he wants to do it. But he's it, there's this clouded judgment in the administration of some folks who somehow think that this is elitism to be providing uh, loans and that it's against the working class. Let me just be clear. The people who are taking out the loans aren't rich kids. They're the working class kids, the middle class kids. I was son of middle class parents. I took out a lot of loans, over $150,000. I've done well. My kids probably aren't going to have to do it, right? I mean, so let's be clear about who's taking out these loans. And, yeah. and, and that's, I think, the the problem with the rhetoric is it's somehow gotten painted uh, as uh, against the working class where it's anything but that. Let me just lay out the, the cynics case on this uh, a little more fully. I mean, uh, part of why I think the whole reason why Biden even was forced into canceling any debt was because pressure that was put on him through the Bernie campaign and the Elizabeth Warren campaign where everybody else had their debt cancellation plans. And he felt like he had to say something on the campaign trail. Then once he's in office, he's sort of like, you know, drags his feet. It's clear he has some ideological resistance to it and some elements in his administration does. But because he's made this clear promise, he has to do something about it. And then lo and behold, now he chooses a process that's going to drag out beyond the next election. So if you're making the sort of cynical case here, it's like, OK, well, he wants to use it as a campaign issue and hold it over people's heads. But how committed is he to actually fighting this when you have the student loan debt you know, payments restarting when you had other processes that you could have deployed in order to get this done more quickly. And when, by the way, you could have done a lot more than ten or twenty thousand dollars in debt cancellation. Well, look, I'm he was late to the process. It's unfortunate. Some of the comments Speaker Pelosi made that Justice Roberts then cites uh, in in striking down yeah. the authority. Uh, <laughs> obviously, the, the administration was uh, flat footed for the first nine, six months and they could have been more aggressive. They could have, like I said, zeroed out the actual loans after they invoked it. But now I think that they are they do want this to be forgiven mm. uh, where the president could be more decisive is saying, stop the repayments, yeah. stop the uh, stop the interest accrual, uh, partly because of the deal that was made in the debt deal uh, that requires the payments to be resumed. But that's under the higher uh, the HEROES Act. It doesn't say resume the payments under the Higher Education Act. I think the president feels like he made this commitment to the mm. Republicans. The place that I think he could show the most leadership now is stopping the interest, stopping the repayment. Yeah. yeah I, so I will say um, I, he's done a lot more on this than I ever thought he would do. So I do find the argument that like, well, he doesn't really want it done a little conspiratorial and wrong, because if that was the case, I don't think he would have done the multiple appeals in the cases when he lost the cases. And I don't think he would have invoked the Higher Education Act. And I also think he realizes that 
his approval rating among young people was 60% when he announced this. And then it dropped all the way to 30% when, when like, you know, the court decisions were coming in saying we're going to reverse this. Yeah, which is and why so, I'm I don't I'm care why he does inclined, it as long as he does it. As I'm long as he does it. I'm more inclined towards the conspiratorial view because that's why they want to keep this going as an active issue through the next election but, because it is really potent. Yeah, but I, would you really appeal this many times and would you really do the Higher Education Act if you didn't want to get it done? Like, at what point do we have to t take things at face value? Like, take yes for an answer. He's trying to get it done. He's just going about it in a way which is true to his institutionalist roots. Now, I wish he wasn't as institutionalist as he was. Yeah. But clearly the like, oh, let's wait for the courts. Let's, you know, we'll let the debt start, the interest start accruing. I think that's just because he's an institutionalist. Let me ask you about the student debt repayments. I was looking at the numbers this morning. The average payment, just the average, is like 400 bucks a month. I think it was $393 a month. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, you know, we're at a time where we just got some decent economic news this week in terms of inflation is cooling. Wages have actually outpaced inflation yeah. for like the first time in decades. That's, that's all good stuff. But at the same time, uh, we have record breaking amounts of personal debt that is held by Americans. You have almost a trillion dollars in credit card debt. That also is a record. And now you're piling on top of that people having to restart these payments. How much of an economic impact do you think that that restarting of payments could have. Well, it's a bad, bad economics, especially in the face of uh, Jerome Powell continually increasing interest rates, which I also think is a mistake, but the president doesn't have control uh, over what Powell does. But you have Powell trying to slow the economy, and now you're going to tell people, young people, okay, don't spend this money on groceries, don't spend it on going out to eat, don't spend it on uh, your daily needs, repay the loans, you're taking money out of the economy. And if you believe that there's any risk of a recession, this is only going to aggravate it. And so one of the things we don't know is what percent of people actually will repay uh, their loans. But if that is starts to be a significant number, then you're taking money out of the economy and uh, it could slow down the economy. So uh, we wanted to ask you about cluster bombs, because I know you're taking the lead on this issue. This is something that uh, apparently President Biden said he struggled with making a decision as to whether or not to send cluster bombs to Ukraine. Um, you know, he's now making the argument uh, we sort of ran out of other kinds of uh, artillery. So we're, we're leaning on the cluster bombs in like an interim period. Cluster bombs are, of course, banned by 123 countries. It's also illegal under U.S. law, not only international law, even though we didn't sign some of the international treaties on cluster bombs. Uh, you know, you showed me a fact that has a 97 percent civilian death rate w when it's been used previously. That's at least what one study showed. Yeah. So tell everybody what you're doing when it comes to cluster bombs. Well, I am uh, supporting Sarah Jacobs' amendment to, to ban them. I mean, here's what I don't understand. I was on earlier on breaking points. We've got almost a trillion dollar defense budget. How is it that you can have that much of a defense budget and not have artillery? Right. I mean, we've had artillery for the last hundred years or something. This right. is not some, like, if you have a defense budget, you'd think the first thing you have is guns and bullets. Of course. <laughs> yeah. and, and we don't have bullets. I, I believe the president is frustrated, but the frustration should be, the first question we should be asking is, why don't we have enough conventional artillery when we're giving defense contractors almost a trillion dollars uh, over 50% you know, of the budget? Where's this money going? Where's it going, well, to your point? <laughs> it's going into massive defense contracts. It's going into overseas bases that are for the Cold War. It's going uh, into legacy uh, legacy industries that uh, are not actually relevant to the modern security needs. I mean, it, the, you would think it doesn't take someone with a military background to think, have enough bullets if, if you want to prepare for a war. So that's the first issue. The second uh, issue is that 
having cluster bombs go there is going to hurt not just uh, potentially Russians, but Ukrainian lives. I mean, when these uh, the, the, the battlefield, unfortunately, is in Ukraine. And if you have these cluster bombs, a lot of them detonate after the fact, years after the fact. We know they could hurt civilians. We know that they often kill kids. Uh, we know uh, that they, uh, when they explode, they, they're not targeted because they have massive other ex explosions. And this is going to mean more people uh, losing their life. So what, what I would, would say is, why aren't we, it's, we're a year into this, if you want, come to Congress to say fund more artillery right. or go to partners to say we need more artillery, you would probably get that in Congress. Why are you coming a year into it uh, with this idea of cluster bombs? Yeah. And I mean, just to, to spell it out a little bit more for people, I mean, Russia has used cluster bombs in yep. this war, which is horrific. Um, the reason why so many nations have signed on to these international treaties banning their use and the reason why even the UK, which has been very hawkish in the Ukrainian conflict, why they've said we think that this is a mistake is because it scatters all of these mini grenades around and some percentage of them don't detonate right away because they have to impact a hard surface and whatever. If they don't, if they hit softer ground, mud, et cetera, they don't necessarily detonate. And then frequently you have children who find them, pick them up, hands get blown off, get killed in certain in, in a lot of instances. So that's why they're, they're such, so atrocious. I mean, what does this do in terms of our moral standing vis-a-vis -vis this war? Well, look, I still think that Ukraine has the moral high ground for one simple reason that Russia invaded them. I mean, sure. this is Ukraine's territory. Uh, but what it what it does is it gives Russia and others a talking point uh, to right. try to draw to draw a false moral equivalence, saying, well, this is just a, a, a territorial dispute, as Russia puts it. I disagree with that. Uh, but it gives them uh, sort of propaganda points. Now, you say, well, why does that matter? The propaganda is not going to matter in the United States. No, it's not going to matter in most of Europe. No, but there's a rest of the world. There's Africa, there's Asia, yeah. there's India, there's China. Uh, and we know that the, 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 the opinion there hasn't been as clear cut as it's been in the West. So why are we giving Russia a talking point which uh, allows other countries to say, OK, we're going to keep purchasing from Russia where we don't have a stake in uh, in being on Ukraine's side? I think that's where the, the problem is. And and the other thing I'm not convinced yet is how much this is actually going to be decisive on a counteroffensive. Mm. Th th there's still going to be under an artillery disadvantage. I, I think what disturbs me about it is this like mission creep and slow motion escalation when it comes to, you know, weapons that previously the Biden administration draws a red line and says, we're not going to give them that kind of weapon. Remember, right. can F you give me yeah, F-16? There was a few examples of this. Like, we can, we're not doing that because that would be an escalation. And of course, you know, the fear is like, what comes after cluster bombs? They're like, well, you know, maybe a little tactical nuke here or there. It, it's, a, it's a scary proposition, especially when you have, you know, the U.S. and Russia were both nuclear powers and it's like slowly escalating towards some inevitable conclusion which is too dangerous and crazy for any of us to wrap our minds around does that worry you too and you know i agree with your assessment that like ukraine ukraine was illegally and offensively invaded by a country that they didn't attack like end of conversation i get that but do we need to get to the negotiation table because i feel like you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and in the future we could be looking back on, wow, that was a mistake that we didn't try to sit down and work this out at a more reasonable time. So do you agree we should be negotiating and trying to get to a, a better end? Well, you know, I uh, I've stood by the uh, progressive letter, which basically said have, a, have right. lines of communication. I voted for every single aid package to Ukraine. I will still vote for the aid package to Ukraine come September 
even though I disagree and don't like the cluster bomb decision because I don't want Ukraine uh, to be without aid. And then you're basically having Russia march in even potentially to Kiev. I mean, we have to support them until the war ends. But at the same time, engage uh, with the dialogue, engage with countries like India to have dialogue, to try to have a just peace and figure out what that what that looks like while supporting Ukraine. I, I don't think the two are uh, are at odds. Yet when we put out that letter basically saying, uh, let's have conversation and let's look for what the end will be for a just peace uh, while supporting Ukraine, you would you would have thought that, uh, you know, we uh, uh, it had broken every rule on the Capitol. I mean, it yeah, was, it was crazy that so many people ran away from it. Credit to you for standing firm on that, because I thought that letter was common sense. The, the letter was very carefully worded, I thought, and, you know, made it clear that you thought the Ukrainian cause was just. And what's been disturbing to me is that since that, you know, letter came out and there's this whole freak out and everybody except for you basically walks away from it. We've heard very little um, critique from the elected left of the idea of just a blank check and endless war. I mean, really, the pushback on cluster munitions is kind of the first that I've heard in quite a while, um, yourself accepting. And it leaves open the narrative to uh, portions of the right many of whose critique isn't really anti-war. It's not really anti-intervention. It's like, we don't like this conflict. We want to be in China or right. we want to be right. invading Mexico instead. <laughs> and so it gives this false impression that there's more anti-war sentiment on the right when those voices, I feel like, have been very effectively silenced among the elected left. Well, I do agree with you that the cluster bombs is the first time since that letter that, that right. uh, people in the House are saying no. I think it'll be important to watch the vote on it. Uh, McGovern, Jim McGovern, I give him credit. He went to the House floor. He said, we need a vote on this amendment. Uh, we're going to get a vote on the amendment. And I think this is going to be a, a a big a big test for, uh, I hope we're going to get more Democratic votes to stop cluster bombs than uh, Republican votes. But, I, but, but, but this is a key moment where we can start to draw some lines, as Kyle put it as well, that uh, we can't just have escalation. And to some extent, I give the president credit because he came uh, after a campaign against endless war, where he heard Bernie say that, where he had Warren say that, where he himself took that position in Afghanistan. He comes out, he pulls out, he did. Up, pulls out he up did. Afghanistan. Uh, Senator Sanders and I defend him. He he took a lot of heat for that. Yep. And you had Petraeus uh, on CNN for two weeks, killing his poll numbers. I yep. mean, he that was a courageous decision. And then on this, for in the beginning... Remember, he got a lot of heat from people saying, take the war to Russia, respond to Putin, no fly zone, give them offensive weapons. And he resisted. And he has actually, and for 16 months, he hasn't given them cluster bombs. So I think his judgment is, it's not just President Biden, he's informed by uh, a, a greater skepticism to intervention and endless wars. Uh, but but we, we need to guard against the creep. We need to make sure we draw the line here at these cluster yeah. bombs. Well, I hope you're the one that's whispering in his ear the entire time, because if he has you as an influence, then he'll be even less interventionist on that front. Did you want to jump in? I just want to ask one more question on um, this piece with Ukraine, which is, you know, specifically, how do you help to bring about negotiations? How do you help to precipitate the end of this conflict? And what is your I mean, what is your view? And I know you get briefings on this of how the war is going for Ukraine, because frankly, Frankly, you know, we cover it really extensively at Breaking Points. We try to read everything that we can. It's just any time in war, it's very difficult to get a sense of what's really going on. I feel like that is even more the case with um, with this particular situation. There's all kinds of reporting that our own intelligence agencies don't really know what the Ukrainians are up to. 
Um, don't keep them privy to that. The, some of the, you know, sabotage and drone strikes on the Kremlin, et cetera. We were in the dark about and we tell them, like, please don't do that again. But they keep going. Anyway, that's just all to say there's a lot of fog around what is actually happening. So, number one, what would you advise the president in terms of how do we get to negotiate a solution? Number two, how is the counteroffensive going? What is your sense of how things actually are on the ground with the war right now? Well, just from public reports, I, I'd say Ukraine has obviously exceeded anyone's expectation with their bravery and their fighting and what they managed to do. But they are uh, at an artillery disadvantage. Yeah. And it was almost at six to one, whether now it's maybe three to one. That's the reason for the cluster munitions decision. If the war was going, if the counteroffensive was going swimmingly well, we wouldn't need to do this. So yeah. it's a long, hard fight. And the challenge is uh, it's unclear that this is going to tip it in, in Ukraine's favor. And then you get to the end of the year, you're in this long, hard fight uh, that's basically been a status quo. How, how, does this, how does this resolve in a just way? Uh, I guess one thing I would do if I were the, the president, other than keeping uh, channels of dialogue uh, open, yeah. uh, is getting other countries that may be uh, mediating uh, in, in influence that have relationships in the region to to be involved. I mean, France tried, Macron tried, India has tried. I mean, it may be that the, it's too much for the United States to be uh, dictating it, but we could get our allies to uh, resolve. The challenges in Ukraine understandably, they want to fight to, to, to the to the death. I mean, they're uh, what I understand from people who are politically uh, involved in the situation is the Ukrainian people want to defend their land. And so Zelensky is also has to be responsive to his people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I can't blame Zelensky for being responsive to his people. But, you know, the fact that we back Ukraine and we see their causes just doesn't mean that our interests are 100 percent aligned with them. We have to look out. Yeah. And like, for example, when it, let's say hypothetically, you get to a point where Russians are totally kicked out of the Donbass, right? Well, according to Zelensky, he says, like, we're going to take back Crimea, too. And it's like, well, what if that's another five-year-long war with 100,000 more deaths? It's like, as bad as it is, wouldn't you want to go? They've held it since, what, 2012? I mean, I so wouldn't right. you want to negotiate the, the on that front, right? The nuclear escalation that hangs all, that's over the, all Yes, of this that's the terrifying thing. The stakes that's so why we need a line of communication. I like your idea of getting people, you know, maybe Erdogan or somebody like that who can mediate and, and try to work this stuff Lula out. Lula is phenomenal at this involved. stuff. He's very pragmatic with foreign policy. He's, I mean, he had a good relationship even with George W. Bush and many people who we think are terrible. He he knew how to like work it behind the scenes. And, and that sounded had, vaguely sexual. Yeah, and he, and he had a good <laughs> meeting with uh, with Biden right. uh, when, he, yeah. when he came here. So, I, I, I mean, I think the point is also you have massive casualties of the Ukrainians and and Russians. I mean, and it's people who are dying. Right. Yeah. And there, there's, you can have an aggressive assertion of Ukraine is just, we're going to support Ukraine. We've got to look for uh, how we have a just peace. The problem is when you say the third sentence in DC, the Beltway says, well, you must not believe in the first yeah. two. You oh, must you're pro-Russian. You must you're be right. pro-Putin. Ridiculous. And, uh, you know, even Kennedy at the height of the Cold War in his American University speech said, we've got to explore peace. We've got to explore dialogue. And that was at a much uh, yeah. more heightened time of tension in, with, the, with the Soviets. So it, it, it's unfortunate that that strain of thinking 
uh, is so suppressed in being and, and, and manipulated. I'm sure people will pull this clip, take something I've said and call me a Russian asset on Twitter <laughs> when I've clearly voted for all the Ukrainian aid. I've supported Ukraine. I've said Ukraine's cause is just. Uh, and you'll get hit the, from the opposite side, too, by the way, on social media, oh, that, uh, where, yeah, where they'll oh, that, say you're a Ukrainian yeah, Nazi or yes, something like that. Yeah, that I'm used to. The left, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, uh, one of my favorite episodes was this, this person for the left was attacking me, attacking me, attacking me. Finally, so one of the more corporate Democrats jumps in and the person says, no, only the left can attack Ro Khan. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, all right, at least they got bad. <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you, uh, we just spent a bunch of time talking about foreign policy. Apparently, I just saw a thread on Twitter today. Um, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is uh, refusing to go to Isaac Herzog's address to Congress. That's, of course, the president of Israel. What are you what are your thoughts on that? Well, I respectfully disagree on on that. I mean, look, I met President Herzog when I was there uh, with Barbara Lee and Speaker Pelosi. He's more on the left in terms of his political ideology. He's more in the Shimon Peres tradition. He's not from the uh, extreme uh, Netanyahu party. Now, uh, my view is no new settlements, lift the embargo on Gaza, uh, have uh, more uh, enforcement so settlers aren't uh, uh, doing damage in, 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 in villages. Um, and I've been clearer on and a two-state solution. But I think you get that through engagement of the more uh, progressive elements. And I don't think you boycott uh, uh, the president of Israel. But. Is that his view, though, too? Is his view to totally stop the settlements? Are they moving in that direction in any way, shape, or form? I doubt he would take that 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 view. I don't know what his yeah, view is. Yeah, which is on why, news, like, I kind of understand where Ilhan Omar is coming from because if that's the left in Israel, it's like you know, well, I want to I mean, play this, along with the charade. Like, this, this is, is the most right wing government in Israeli history. I mean, you yeah. have you know cabinet officials who out and out called for a Palestinian town to be wiped off the map. You have increase in you know, you just had a horrific violent raid. You have um, settlements. I guess, I mean, I would like to know, do you think that we should be withholding military aid to try to compel fewer human rights abuses at the least? Do you really think a two-state solution is feasible and possible at this point? Because that's part of with the Netanyahu, this Netanyahu government, which is in coalition with some truly extreme fringe factions. It's almost like they don't even pretend anymore that a two-state solution is a goal. And as the settlements encroach further and further, it just becomes impossible to see how that could ever be a realistic outcome. Well, I think with Netanyahu, it's uh, highly, highly improbable. Before that, with Bennett, uh, who, who was also more right and Lapid, uh, at least there was still some. I mean, there was there were Arabs in the cabinet. There was some uh, hope that there would be uh, two states, but you need to see a new. Uh, for for there to be two states, you have to have partners on 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 both sides. But I still think that that has to be the aspiration. I mean, the settlements in many of the places are illegal under uh, international law, and and those settlements uh, will have to be part of a negotiated process uh, to have two states. I don't think it's impossible uh, to get there. I, I would say on the aid, you know, I voted candidly for the aid, but what I have said is that under the Leahy law. Uh, aid cannot be used for human rights violations and mm -hmm. that the State Department should track that for all countries. Yeah, they're and, not listening. <laughs> and, <laughs> they're not listening to uh, that. <laughs> and, and that our aid uh, is already restricted under the Lee Hate Law, and I support those restrictions. It shouldn't be 
uh, it, it shouldn't be used for anything that's a violation of human rights. Yeah. I mean, I'll just wrap this portion up by saying I understand where Ilhan is coming from. It reminds me of if George W. Bush went somewhere to give a speech during the height of the Iraq war and somebody was like, I'm not going to go to that. This guy's a war criminal. I totally understand that perspective when it comes to the Israeli government because they're some of the most brazen with their human rights abuses, with uh, their apartheid system. And, uh, you know, they also have Rashida Tlaib also can't go visit her grandma because of how restrictive this government is. And Ilhan she cited that. I think banned completely from the country. Which, which I've spoken I mean, out against. Freedom I mean, and I mean, democracy, but you can't come here because you criticize us. It's laughable. Uh, I've spoken. The two things I will say. One is that, uh, and I think I was on CNN years ago when this happened, saying any American citizen uh, should be, especially a member of Congress, should be able to go uh, to, to, to Israel and uh, defend it, their right to do so. And I, I, and, But the other thing is uh, you can have a passionate disagreement with uh, Congresswoman Tlaib or, or Congresswoman Omar, uh, but some of the attacks that they have faced for voicing what they view as uh, their uh, public policy perspective are targeting them because of their faith, targeting them uh, because they're women of color and smearing them as anti-Semites, which and, is a big and, one I've seen. And and that that I think is 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 unfortunate, and it's not going to get uh, a stronger U.S.-Israel relationship, or it's not going to endear young progressives. I've I, I've said the the challenge is how do you have uh, a two-state solution recognizing Israel as an ally in Palestinian rights, and people maybe to the left or the right. But certainly, we've got to stop smearing folks uh, who you disagree with, beat them on the arguments, to argue the merits with them. Yeah, and the thing she was called an anti-Semite for was saying that, uh, talking about APAC, the Israel lobby, saying it's all about the Benjamins, a thing she would say about the Saudi Arabian lobby too, but nobody would call her an Islamophobe if she pointed that out. So anyway, that one of the things that triggers me. Um, and I don't agree with her comments. I just don't. I, I do. just want. I agree. I, with I, you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you want to uh, ask yeah, a question? Yeah. So uh, one thing I'm curious about is, you know, what is your view of the left movement at this point? And you know, and get into asking you more about Biden and your support of him, et cetera. But you know, it feels like post Bernie, there's been a lot of disillusion at the national level in terms of like any sort of cohesive left movement. Um, there's very little, I think you're one of the few that almost consistently voices any sort of dissent from the Biden administration when the idea was, okay, we're going to elect the squad. We're going to get these people in there. They're going to be, they're going to fight against democratic leadership. They're going to make it clear. There's a contrast between them and, you know, the Pelosi corporate wing of the party. So what, what's happening with that project? Well, I would say the left has been stronger than ever in, in my lifetime. And I'll say a couple points. We just had a progressive caucus meeting. Bernie Sanders came. He said when he started the Progressive Caucus, there were five members. You got about 100 members there, and all of them almost have signed on to Medicare for All, to a commitment on free college. Now, you could say we haven't achieved it, but we're shifting where the median of the Democratic Party is. And this Where's the fight, though? I don't see the fight. On well, paper, they're for it, but nobody's fighting for it. And let me say, I think shifting the median of where the Democratic voter is, yes, but— I mean, healthcare isn't an active topic. Biden has wouldn't stopped. even do public option. He, even, he doesn't even talk about the public <laughs> right, option anymore. Yeah. I don't hear anyone saying anything about well, it. Well, I agree on healthcare. <laughs> we haven't we haven't done it enough. I mean, we the best thing we did on healthcare was was the uh, insulin caps, but that was for people on on Medicare. 
we increase some of the uh, affordable care subsidies, but I, I mean, I think he should have started to expand Medicare to 60 to 55 during the pandemic. Uh, he could have done that. He ran on that to expand it to at least uh, 60. We should have uh, done more on prescription drugs. We could have eliminated medical debt uh, in cases where hospitals are engaged in price gouging. So I agree with you on healthcare. We haven't done enough, but I, I think you would agree that President Biden has been a much, much, much more progressive president uh, than Senator Joe Biden, and probably uh, on, on on many dimensions, the, the most progressive in modern modern times. I mean, the child tax credit, uh, the the fact that, that we got a, a bigger uh, rescue plan that we didn't have the same debates, the fact that we're now saying we got to build manufacturing here, not just offshoring jobs that we're, we're focused on the working class, talking about unions positively. Uh, so the, the the point is, I think my view is post Biden, there should be 20 years of uh, of progressives running the Democratic Party like there were DLC candidates. But we've got to build to that. And, and we're not going to get there. I think the left, you know, I, I'm all for criticism. I come on these shows. I know I'm going to disagree with Kyle on some things on Israel. I'm yeah, going to disagree. We, we well, you know, and that, I, by the way, but but. And I think that's healthy. I don't think you should have sort of a left ecosystem of the media, which is just uh, lionizing the left. On the other hand, there is so much cannibalization of us attacking each other. I was like, let, let's just get some power first. I mean, let's just get someone, you know, th there's got to be some building. And we're much closer than people realize. So can I just say, here's where the frustration comes from. I, I agree with you that Biden's the most progressive president of my lifetime. I agree. But that's also like being the tallest kid in kindergarten. <laughs> and and we, you know, we elected these left leaders so that they could do what the Tea Party did back in the day to Republicans, which is like, I'm going to make your life living hell and I'm going to force you to accept my ideology, my ideas, which, by the way, is backed up. The American people want these things, too, based on the polling. Right. And so one of the things that's evidence of and why many people are frustrated is that so in the race right now, you have Cornell West, who's running third party approach. Now, I have criticism of third party approach. I think you need to get rid of first past the post voting and do rank choice voting in order to make that viable. But Cornell West is running, who's a historic lefty intellectual. And then you also in the Democratic primary have Marianne Williamson running, who's it's not debatable. Her her philosophy and ideology and, and policies are more in line with Bernie Sanders than Joe Biden's are. And so just one of the things she's running on is reviving FDR's Economic Bill of Rights, which is all I've wanted from any candidate in my entire life. We have the right to a job that pays a living wage, the right to a voice in the workplace through a union. Right off the bat, this is better than Joe Biden. Right to quality universal health care, Medicare for all, better than Joe Biden. Uh, right to a cost-free higher education, better than Joe Biden. Right to affordable good housing, better than Joe Biden. And I could go on here pointing out the areas where Marianne's philosophy agrees more with yours um, than Joe Biden's does. And I think the frustration is once people get in that house, it, once people get in the club, it's like, okay, we're going to close the ranks and we're going to basically play defense for our leader, Joe Biden. And look, I... I've taken heed for being too pro-Joe Biden when I give him credit on doing things that are good, like pulling out of Afghanistan, right? But uh, you need to see more of that fight from the from the left-wing uh, Congress people because we need to know somebody's representing us in our views. I mean, I haven't heard the word Medicare for all said by anybody in Congress in, what, a year now? So your thoughts? Well, we're... we're uh... Still talking about Medicare for all. I mean, maybe the question is, how do we get more progress than just talking right. about it in yeah. floor speeches and tweets? But there, there are places where we fought the administration on student loans. I mean, that was a place we fought on on climate. I mean, the IRA, the fact that they had so many climate investments was because progressives said that's the one place that's uh, non-negotiable. And with the American Rescue Plan, the progressives had a lot of our priorities uh, in in that 
uh, in that plan. But look, I'm one of the few people I've said nice things about Marion Williamson, and I've gone on her podcast. I've said that uh, it, she should be welcomed into having an I ideas, and if she moves the platform uh, to be more progressive, consistent with voters, good for her. And I've I, I never criticize her. People say, well, why aren't you endorsing her? Because I say, I think there's more that goes into being an effective president of the United States than just having uh, the, the, the a, a more sympathetic ideological alignment on Medicare for all. I mean, I, I think it does matter if you've had elective office. It doesn't have to be a, a lot of elective office, but some elective office. I do think it matters. But his experience is yeah. that. Come on. He voted for the Iraq war. He voted for NAFTA. He did the crime bill. His experience is actually bad. I would do a strike against him because, like you said, he was way more conservative as a senator then he is progressive as a president. He's a better president than a senator. They, but they also, Congressman, could have said those things about you when you were challenging a yeah, exactly. Democrat right. or AOC when but, but, she was challenging Joe Crowley. But there was a benefit to you, and there was a benefit to our country I, the fact that you and AOC and were an outsider. Others, you were an outsider. We're outsiders, and, I and think, had a different perspective. And I think there's a benefit to having outsiders eventually uh, in, in leadership and, and running for president, but I don't think that that... Uh, that means no. I mean, I, if, if if Nina Turner had won, for example, her House seat and run, I think that would have been uh, different. But that said, look, Marion Williamson uh, is is adding to the debate. I think the attacks on her uh, have been uh, unkind, and 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 they, and she shouldn't be silenced. I mean, if she can move the platform and progressive directions. Good for her. Look. I guess the part for me, because um, this is partly relevant because uh, AOC just endorsed Congresswoman uh, right. Cortez, just endorsed Biden this week. Bernie endorsed him early on. You've endorsed him as well. It's like, you know, we're not naive. Like I, I get, know how the game works. I get that you need to work with the president, right? I get that you feel like, and we could debate this, but you feel like keeping a decent relationship with him uh, will enable you to be able to maneuver, to be able to get more progressive priorities into bills. Like, I, I understand all of that. I just don't know why any of you had to endorse anyone. Like, why not just... Yeah, if you stayed out, I would have respected that a lot, because that's a well, wink and a nod and to the left. Like, do your thing. Let's see how thing. far this goes. I mean, you would actually, if you did that, you would be much more in line with the Democratic base, not the left-wing, right. weird online, whatever. Overwhelming majority of Democrats are like, we actually want options. We actually want a primary. We're actually concerned about the president for a variety of reasons um, running for office again. So why not, why insert yourself? Why not just stay out? let the process play out and maybe call for debates because that would be good for democracy and consistent with a lot of Democratic Party rhetoric about how pro-democracy we are. So why the need to actually actively jump in for a man that you have a lot of ideological differences with and have been courageous in criticizing at times? Well, I think the president's first two years were more progressive than many of us expected. I mean, people were genuinely proud of the American Rescue Plan. They were genuinely proud of what he did on Afghanistan, what he did on student loans, what he's done on uh, the IRA, what but he's what doing. what is he even planning for the second term? I mean, That's legitimately, point, yeah. because the this first two years, agreed. Yeah, I do. I 100% agree with you. To be We don't hear yeah. much about, you know, the, lately what we've gotten is we're going to side with capital over workers on a rail strike. We're going to agree to this like ridiculous hostage taking from the Republicans and strike a bad deal with them. I mean, that's basically since Ron Klain has left. That's right. It has been there's that's been right. a turn in the administration and they have not laid out an affirmative vision for a second term that I've heard of. Maybe you can inform me about it. I hear a lot of cheerleading the accomplishments that happened. There's some things to celebrate there, no doubt. I hear a lot of just, we're not Trump, like, and that yeah. also is legitimate, you know, like, let's keep the, the baddies away from the White House. I get that too. But what are you, what are we even supporting for a second term? 
Well, I think we should lay that out. I mean, it, we need to get the living wage, I mean, wage increase. The fa that was one of the big misses. We didn't get the minimum wage. We should have fired the parliamentarian. Some of us called on to do that. Uh, we should have childcare for everyone. I'm working on $10 a day childcare, but you want to go after people's costs, do childcare, have an agenda to have paid family leave, which we still don't have in this country. Yeah. I've said, why can't we bring modern steel plants to places that have been deindustrialized? If Europe's doing that with clean uh, steel, with hydrogen steel, why aren't we doing that in Johnstown, Pennsylvania and Ohio? There's a lot we can do and achieve in some of it, actually, with Republican votes. I mean, force them to vote on, are you for paid family leave? Are you for raising the wage? Are you for bringing steel plants into uh, the Midwest? I mean, so I, I would run on an economic populist agenda and on abortion, obviously, uh, reproductive yeah. rights right, and yeah. gay rights mm -hmm. and, and democracy. The articulation of that, I think the articulation of the working class economic agenda for a second term has to be stronger. I think the president has done a very good job highlighting uh, the stakes with abortion rights, which are existential for people. He's done a good job on highlighting gun safety. He's done a good job on highlighting the extremism of democracy, but he's going to have to have a strong economic message as well. The funny thing is I agree totally with the agenda that you just laid out. I think fighting for those things that you just said is an ideal uh, path for the, you know, for the next four years. But funny enough, that's why I, I support Marianne Williamson and not Biden is because I feel like she's more likely to fight on those issues. Uh, Crystal, I'll give you the last question. Yeah. So um, I would love to get just your your big picture view of, you know, what are you hopeful about? What do you see happening in the country right now that you find encouraging? What is the plan for being able to push Biden if he's your guy in, you know, a more progressive direction that he seems to have uh, backed away from in this last number of months? What is your view of those things? I'm very hopeful for the younger generations. Uh, they get it on student loans. They get it on wages. They get it on climate. They get it on uh, cost of college. They get it on child care. And I think that's the future of the party. I say, you want to see the future of this country. Don't worry about Trump versus Biden. Come meet my colleagues who've been elected in the last few years. Meet Maxwell Frost, Deliah Ramirez, Jonathan Jackson, not just AOC and the, uh, Jamal Bowman, who are uh, wonderfully, you know, out there and, and, and well-known, just people who are not as well-known, Chris Deluzio. And you'll get a sense of where this party is headed, where this country is headed. And I, I would just say to progressives two things. Don't forget how close Bernie Sanders came to being president of the United States. He won Iowa. He won New Hampshire. He won Nevada. Uh, and had he done a little better in South Carolina and had everyone not dropped, he would have been the nominee. And I think there's sort of an amnesia. People want the progressives to forget how much of a base we have. So keep fighting. Uh, let's make this president as successful as we can. And then from 28 to to, to 48, let's have 20 years of a progressive movement. This country is only going to go, if the, if we keep fighting, we're only making more and more gains. And I sometimes that's what I find. There's so much doomerism or negativity on the left that I, I, I say you, you don't realize how close uh, how close you are. It, it, Nelson Mandela used to say it always seems impossible until it's done. Mm. And people often stop short of victory right before they're about to achieve it. And I, sometimes I feel that about progressives. Like I get you're not there yet, but you've gotten a more, the most progressive president uh, in your lifetime. And if you can just keep pushing, maybe we can have this progressive movement post-Biden. Yeah, well, except for the post-Biden part, I'd say that's exactly why we're supporting Marianne Williamson. <laughs> so, um, thank you for being a good yeah, sport. Yeah, Congressman, we really appreciate you coming. Thank you. I no, you I know that, that we genuinely No, I enjoy it. I appreciate it. the back and forth. And I uh, and I appreciate because uh, the, the accountability and f forcing to think through the issues. And I And it's a way to talk to 
to people on the left. You know, I, I, I go on your show, I go on Bree sometimes, et cetera, and you look at sometimes the comments, they're all negative, and then I'll be at the airport, I'll talk to someone. By the way, a lot of people listen to these to you guys and listen to folks, and they'll say, you know, thank you for being on there. And I wish more members of Congress would realize, like, what they remember at the end of the day often is, okay, you're willing to engage. Yeah. And, I, and, and that, uh, and you're transparent. Like, I don't go and say something to you that I won't go say on Fox News. And I think those two things are... Uh, or what's going to build trust with the progressive movement. Totally. And I would love for you to encourage any of your colleagues to come on with us. You know, we'll ask tough questions. It's our job. But we also, I hope you feel like are fair. And good luck moving forward on uh, the cluster bomb issue. Keep because, us updated yeah, there. We're 100% with you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Great Thank to see you, you, Congressman. Thank good. you. All right. So there you have it. That was Congressman Rokana. Um, good discussion. I... You know, the point that you were making that I jumped in on as well, which is like, I, I, I get it. Like, I get the way politics works. I'm not an idiot. You know, human relationships are human relationships and you have to keep a line of communication and you want to influence the president and you want him to take you seriously. Like, I understand all of that. Yeah. So it is a complicated picture. But if they just stayed out, like... I, that would have been the wink and the nod to the left, like, yeah, I'm kind of with Marianne. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it, they refuse to even do that. And I think the thing that annoys me is it's like backing Biden. I, I don't think anything positive actually comes of it. Like, I don't think he's more willing to listen to the left because of that. No. You know, so I think if if a Congress he's actually less willing to listen to the left. Yeah, I think if Congressman like, Khanna. Yeah, you you put no pressure. You didn't require anything for your endorsement. I think if Congressman Khanna kept a good relationship with the president and, you know, I don't know, if he talks to him on the phone or meets with him once a month or whatever. I don't know how often he sees him, but he could keep doing that. And if he never endorsed Biden, he could still keep doing that. Right. You know, and then look, by come the general election, if it is Biden, I have no problem with him, of course, saying I support Joe Biden over Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Right. So it's just you know, and they can make a point of it. Like, I have a policy of not endorsing anybody. You know what I mean? Like, they could have, there's a million ways you could have navigated this that wasn't just immediately bending the knee. Yes, I fully agree with that. I mean, I always want to say, like, I genuinely appreciate that Ro Khanna comes in. I think the fact- He's the only one. And I think the fact that he does that has, I don't think it's an accident that he ends up being one of the better members of Congress and one of the more courageous because he engages in these spaces. He's willing to do it, et cetera. But the other piece for me is like, you know, he brought up, oh, we've got 100 co-sponsors on the Medicare for all bill. It's like, that doesn't fucking matter. If you're not, if you don't have a plan to push it, then okay, you did a, like, you've got 100 people who are willing to virtue signal on an incredibly popular issue. It does not matter. So that's the piece to me is like, I don't see what the strategy is to actually get more of a progressive agenda and certainly, you know, immediately endorsing Biden, not even letting him twist in the wind a little bit and wonder about it gives you zero leverage to push for anything for a second agenda. Biden doesn't plan on running on anything. And no one apparently, at least at the elected level, is really going to push him to do that. So it's like, yeah, you can land. OK, here's what he should run on. But what are you going to do to try to make that a reality? And, you know, that's that's the piece that to me, I just I just can't quite. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there is no strategy and they don't really care all that much because having a strategy and fighting that all requires work and a vision. And I think they lack both <laughs> a vision and doing the hard work. So like a good example that I've seen people bring up and he, he brought it up to his credit, like paid family leave. Mm -hmm. This is something that polls at over 80%. Even a majority of Republican voters support this. Right. Why would you not do a standalone bill 
and then hit the Sunday shows and go fight for it and have the president give a speech and, you know, list out the numbers. 84% of the country wants this and a majority of Republicans want this and 90 something percent of Democrats want this and we're going to get it done. And if you vote against this Republicans, you need to look a hardworking mother in the eye and tell her you can't pick your kid up from school. You can't do X, Y, like let's see some fight. Let's see some political pressure. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, okay. Well, the battle lines are clear. Everybody knows who was on the right side, who was fighting for the right Mm -hmm. thing. And to your point, especially after Ron Klain left the Biden White House, like, he hadn't done Dicky McGee's acts. What he has done has sucked. Well, actually, the debt, you know. To be fair, I didn't expect him to invoke the Higher Education Act at all. So that I'll give him credit for. Yeah. But outside of that, yeah, it's nothing. Jeff Zients is a total corporate hack, and he's doing now Biden is more conservative than he was under. Uh, Ron Klain. We very quickly forgotten the way that he gave in to the Republican like hostage shaking tactics on the debt ceiling. And that's the reason why the student loan payments are restarting is because he made that deal as part of. Like, that's a great point. I the, forgot about that. The debt ceiling negotiations. And so, you know, I mean, listen, I'm I've sort of stopped getting my hopes up about some of these things. And I do want to give it like it is better that Rokana and others are there to push on like cluster munitions, for example. I hope that's the start of them being more aggressive and challenging some of the unending escalation in the Ukraine war. Um, you know, beyond that, I just, I wish there was more fight there. I wish there was more willing to draw a distinction with leadership. I don't understand why they needed to endorse right away in the the primary. I don't know why they couldn't stay out. I would love to see them advocating for, hey, listen, Make your case to the American people. Go get on a debate stage. Because we saw the whole reason we got student loan debt um, relief at all is because Biden had to get on a debate stage up against Bernie Sanders and had to say something on student debt. Otherwise, that doesn't happen. So there's a lot of value that can come through a primary. There's a lot of pressure that can be applied, even if Biden ends up being the nominee. Yeah. I mean, so I've said repeatedly, I think Biden is sort of by far the best president of my lifetime. He's way better than I expected him to be, just judging it objectively based on the things that he's he's done. To your point, it was much more early on. But like, I wonder if like, what are the chances that all of these congressional progressives who have bent the knee to Biden? Do they just think he's like even better than he is? Is that what it is? Do they view him as like, no, seriously, guys, is it like my view, but on steroids where it's like, I think he's the best president of my lifetime, but he's still just like the tallest kid in kindergarten. There's nothing to write home about. I mean, Lyndon Johnson blows him out of the water and he yeah. was a hardcore racist. FDR blows him out of the water. He did Japanese internment and he was still way better. Right. So like, I guess what I'm trying to steal man their case. And the best I can come up with is that they genuinely view him as like, no, he's a very progressive president. And I agree with him. You know what I mean? Like, is that possible? Here's here's, I think, the way that they would say it. I mean, I I do think they view him as better than we do. Um, You know, AOC, in explaining why she was endorsing Biden, she said he was, quote, quite good. Yeah, the American Rescue Plan she pointed to. And what else did she She point to a couple things? I don't remember. (laughs) But she that was the, the language of he's quite good stuck in my head. I think they would say, listen, we've seen that there are things we can get out of this administration. It's better than we expected. Um, We don't think that Marianne is going to win. So we think we get more out of maintaining a good relationship with the guy who's in charge and being able to be part of those negotiations. And we think that that is the best way to achieve progressive priorities. I think that's what they would argue. I mean, that's basically what Roe does argue. You know, yeah, that that would be a more honest, I think, assessment, the idea of like keeping the line of communication open again. My hesitancy on that point is just 
does never worked that way. Like it never worked. You would be. Uh, I just. If you're me, a crusading psychopath, it works better. <laughs> to me, it's really clear. Yes, if you're a crusading psychopath, it works better. But even Tea just party. even yep. just in the context of a primary, if you don't force this guy to have to run on anything or answer what do you to what do you expect you're gonna get yeah right we know yeah. what we're gonna get nothing we are he's already running on nothing yeah like we know the nothing that we will get and primaries are really maybe the most powerful place to actually extract some promises and demand some sort of affirmative agenda that then when he's in office we with the student loan debt we see while it's limited i'm not saying like it's going to be everything that you want you can at least apply some pressure to make good on the promises that were extracted during the primary. Yeah, yeah. And just to be clear, because I don't want people getting lost in the weeds and interpreting the wrong thing, none of this is to say that Trump and Biden are equal or DeSantis and Biden are equal. In my opinion, Biden has been a million times better than any Republican. So I just want to make that clear because sometimes people, there's like what you say and what you mean and then how it's misinterpreted many times. And I don't want people to get the misimpression that this detailed talk about strategy and the way forward and all this stuff yeah. is a way to like obscure the fact that this dude who can barely complete a full sentence is a million times better than Donald Trump. Anyway, yes. that's, that's all I got for you. Indeed. Well, thank you to uh, Congressman Khanna for spending time with us. We're really grateful for him being willing to subject himself to, you know, what is, uh, we always have to challenge him a little bit on some of these things. And thank you guys so much for watching. Um, thank you to those of you who have subscribed. If you are not a paid subscriber, we would greatly appreciate it. As Kyle always says, we do not take a dime for advertisers. We really try to keep it as pure as possible over here. So if you can please go on over to the Substack and subscribe. Otherwise, we'll see y'all next week.